Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, do you ever find yourself like thinking thoughts in, in, a, in one circumstance or another, and you, you kind of have that paranoia where you, you, you hope that nobody can read your thoughts? Wait, I mean, there's a thought bubble over my head at all times, right? Well, no, but... Uh, no. I was kind of under that assumption. Well, yeah, if you, if you read enough comics, I guess you do fall into that thing. But, but there are times where you kind of feel like there's a thought bubble, and to a certain yes. extent... We all have tells. We all have uh, uh, there are various uh, subtle and not so subtle cues uh, regarding what we're thinking about. Um, but but I have at times found myself in situations where I like I'll think of something and I'll be and I'll be like, ooh, I, I hope nobody could hear hear my thoughts. Like an irrational. No, fear. I actually know exactly what you're talking about. It's those intense moments, and you're thinking really, really, just very intensely about something, and it seems as though whatever is going on in your head is just booming out there. Yeah. And you look up, and I know it's that brief moment where you think, "Did they hear inside my head?" Yeah, or like sometimes, like my brain. Anyway, I'll I'll, I'll find myself in a situation or the end of my. I'll think, "What is the worst possible thing I could think at this this moment?" And then I'll think it, and then I'll be like, "Brain, what are you doing?" There could be people listening or watching in or or reading you. So your concern, well, is that it's not a logical concern. <laughs> Although in the future, we're talking yeah, we're t- twenty years, perhaps even yeah. Those thoughts, those dark thoughts, might be revealed. Yeah, exactly. To, to everyone. Yeah, because the on a whim, the thought police do not ex- exist as a you know as a, in, in its sci-fi sense yet. But uh, police, uh, law enforcement, employers, um, family members are of course very interested in what people are thinking, and uh, we continue to roll out scientific and pseudoscientific ways to. Uh, to guess at what is going on inside someone else's mind. Yeah, because, I mean, the the big mystery for all of us is whether or not someone is telling the truth or telling a lie. And we want to scratch at that as much as possible. And genome sciences and policy lawyer Nita Farini says that neuroscience is already influencing the courtroom, at least with terminology. She uh, had brought up some examples at the World Science Festival on the mm-hmm. panel on neuroscience and law that you attended. Yep. Brains on Trial, that one was hosted by Alan Alda, and it was uh, it was quite excellent. And she says that uh, people say things like, I didn't consciously choose to do the thing that I'm accused of. My brain made me do it. My brain made me do it, or I have a predisposition to addiction, and therefore when this occurred, it wasn't my brain. It was the brain of another person under different circumstances. Yeah. So we already see sort of the leaking of neuroscience into the courtroom, into law. So now it's just a matter of looking at both the past and the present and future to try to figure out how all of this is going to settle and what sort of technology is going to shape it. Yeah, your mention of the whole like my brain made me do it, or there's something in my my in, in my brain that may be responsible for this, and I didn't have a say in it. It's interesting because that all gets into this whole um, the the mind body problem, the the idea that uh, a brain is a physical thing and a mind is a non physical thing. Our consciousness is a is a is a, is a creation of mind, mm-hmm. and uh, our mind is a creation of brain, mm-hmm. and uh, and and we find ourselves saying, hey. Uh, I'm a mind. Don't don't try the mind based on what the brain's doing. Persecute the brain, not the mind. Like it, it gets quickly it, as complex as any pondering we may have about the nature of consciousness and the, the nature of self. Yeah, there's a lot of pointing of fingers because yeah. you could even say, well, wait, 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 is the brain messing up my mind, my concept of reality? Yeah. 
Um, yeah, so that's why all this becomes incredibly interesting when you start to look at fMRI technology um, and and some other technologies that we will discuss today. But in order to do that, we have to, of course, travel back to the past, and actually not even the past because some of these things are already in use. Yeah. Now, um, of course, we're talking about science. We're talking about sci- the use of science in uh, investigations, in um, interviews, in interrogations, and in uh, criminal investigations and in trials. And we've always used science for these means. I mean, it's uh, you can find examples uh, where we would use um, phrenology, mm-hmm. uh, the, the measuring of skulls. You know, totally bogus, but for a brief time, this seemed like a, a logical way to scientifically study what would make one person a criminal and, and another person not. Um, fingerprinting. We did a whole episode on this. If you want to really get into the the, the history of fingerprinting and the 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 uh, validity of fingerprinting uh, when it comes to criminal investigation, do check that episode out. Because as we discussed there, a lot of uh, the fingerprinting science isn't as uh, as solid as we used to think it it, it, it is. Mm-hmm. And um, and a lot of its power in the courtroom had to do with the fact that it was presented as powerful uh, information. With this all these unique identifier. Yeah. Yeah. It was just the cell of it. Uh, also, you've seen, uh, you know, truth serums have had their day, psychotherapy, um, polygraphs, which we'll discuss here momentarily. And uh, now we're increasingly in the age of DNA uh, evidence, and uh, and certainly DNA evidence has done a lot of good. It is uh, it has been able to uh, to reverse decisions that were made based on faulty evidence in the past. We've seen through mm-hmm. the the, uh, the Innocence Project, and, uh, and then we're we're already in this age and of neuroimaging in the courtroom, in criminal investigations, and we're only going to see more and more of it over the next 10 years. Uh, I did want to point out that truth serum is actually used in some parts of the world, and uh, truth serum is part of something called narco-analysis, and uh, this is administering psychoactive drugs for those interrogation purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, most people are probably familiar with the term sodium pentothal. Yes. And this is that's, you know, quote unquote, truth serum. Uh, however, it doesn't exactly extract truthful statements from people. In fact, there's this idea that it might make people talk, but people are still really responsive to suggestions. So they're still going to tell you um, what they think that you're trying to tease out of them, or they're still conscious that they're expected to deliver something to someone. Yeah, I mean, in that regard, it's not much different from torture. The idea that if you inflict physical pain on somebody, they will tell you anything you want to hear to make the pain stop, and therefore it's 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 a largely unreliable form of interrogation. And that's the problem um, that we're going to discuss, too, with all these different technologies, uh, is that at some point there is a margin of error, mm-hmm. and there's a problem here interpreting the results. And so polygraphs are a great example of this. Yeah, let's let's get into into polygraphs. Now, polygraphs, of course, the lie detection test. Most people are familiar with this from TV, uh, where it has been just used to death in every television show imaginable. Um, and even when it's used in a more uh, realistic fashion, we still are bringing in all these preconceived notions about what it consists of and how reliable it may or may not be. Mm-hmm. So uh, a polygraph is essentially a seismograph for the nervous system. It measures uh, uh, physiological responses such as heart rate, blood pressure, sweatiness, um, breathing. Uh, so when you're anxious, you're angry, you're in pain, uh, you're emotionally aroused, these measures spike automatically. Uh, generally, it's four to six sensors that are attached to the body. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and again, it's breathing rate, pulse, blood pressure, perspiration. And sometimes they'll also record things like arm and leg movements. And this is being used uh, in the CIA as well as the NSA. 
So there are various agencies that actually use this. Um, the problem with the polygraph is that you can actually beat it. And if you can train yourself to think in a certain manner or to do a couple of tricks, uh, it's not a problem, actually, to to pass one of these. So as they're testing you with this polygraph device, uh, they, of course, need to have a baseline reading. They need to ask you stuff like, hey, uh, is your name Julie Douglas? And you say yes, and they see what that reading is. Mm-hmm. Uh, they say, are you wearing a striped shirt today? And you say yes. Yes. And then they say, are you the queen of Mars? And you would say no. Yes. Thanks, or yes, so whichever the, the case may be. Mm-hmm. Um, and and this would tell let them know, okay, these are what our readings are when she is not lying to us. And then they would also ask you, you know, they would ask you some things, too, that you were, you're expected to lie, like, um, have you ever killed a bug? Well, I don't know. That's not a good one. Well, have you ever stolen money? Have you money? ever stolen money? Yes. Have you ever lied to your parents? No. 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 Yes. So they, yeah, they begin to, they, these universal questions that they know eventually you'll lie on. Yeah. Just to get, again, that baseline of, well, what does a lie look like? What does a lie look like with this person? What does the truth look like with this person? And now let's ask him the stuff we want to know. Have you ever seen the inside of the How Stuff Works safe? You know, things like that. Yes. And and see, that would be something that they would test for. And they would compare that reading to these other baseline readings. Yeah, so what's cool about that lying baseline is Mm -hmm. that is the one that you can game so that it scrambles everything else, right? Now, technically, it is possible for someone to, to simply not have a strong physical response to lying. Mm-hmm. Uh, people have beat lie detection uh, tests before with this kind of uh, effect, but it's it's more difficult. This is the kind of thing you would expect Hannibal Lecter to do, you know, uh, m- more advanced control or or, or lack of, uh, of physical involvement with what's coming out of your mouth. But, uh, but yeah, the baseline is, is a much easier thing to screw up. And that's where, say, the thumbtack method comes into place. Okay. So you would put a thumbtack in your shoe, and then when you're asked one of these baseline questions, you jab that sucker into your toe, which causes some distress, and then it messes up their baseline. It looks like okay. you're getting this high reading for something that uh, is a known truth or a known lie. Okay, so the first time you lie, mm-hmm. you <laughs> you just maim yourself so that your physiological response is just so active that it that just that seismograph goes nuts. Yeah. So the next time that you lie... Yeah, it's not going to be near as strong. Okay. They're like, oh, well, that... They that didn't mess them up at, at all. They'll just look at the readings. Uh, now, the one of the problems with the, with this method is that uh, some polygraph tests will uh, testers will make you take your shoes off. So uh, it's it's become that common of a of a, of a method. Ah, uh, but who's to say you can't bite your tongue? Exactly. So the, there are other means of causing yourself a little bit of physical uh, discomfort um, to uh, to allow you to mess with those baselines. Um, now there are other bits of folklore that are out there. For instance, uh, uh, some people say that you can take certain drugs, you can rub any uh, perspirant on your fingertips, or, or you can use hypnosis, you can, or just wiggling your toes or flexing your arms, coughing. Uh, but these these tend not, not to work that well. Oh, I see. So the antiperspirant is so that it reduces the, the galvanic response, that sweating response, right? Yeah, but uh, but what I've been reading is that that really doesn't help you any. And that's just only one of the things that it's testing for anyway, so you mm-hmm. still can't help it if your heart rate goes nuts. Another thing that I have read is that um, just it's a mind over matter issue, and that if you can try to um, think really warm and cozy thoughts, calming thoughts, yeah. while you're lying... Is that you may still get a little bit of a, you know, some action on that seismograph, but mm-hmm. it may not be nearly as pronounced if you weren't uh, trying to essentially meditate during this process. Yes. 
So it's still used in a number of agencies. It's used by uh, by employers. But in most states, uh, you don't actually see it in courts anymore because it doesn't pass scientific standards of admission in the courtroom. I was looking at a particular website, antipolygraph.org, mm-hmm. which is uh, which is generally aimed at its use by employers and by uh, by these agencies. And they point out a number of interesting things about polygraph tests, about how so much of it isn't even about the uh, looking at readings and comparing them, uh, comparing these baseline results right. to the the results of these questions. They're, but they're bringing in all the other aspects of interrogation. So, for instance, they're looking for things like, oh, did the did the individual show up late? Did they seem hesitant? Uh, what does their voice sound like when they answer no to this question or answer yes to this one? So, and and then they're also trying to get subtle admissions out of uh, out of the uh, the subject as well during the course of the test. So, uh, in in a, in a sense, it's still a straight up interrogation, like a straight up police, uh, you know, uh, bright light in the eyes kind of a thing. <laughs> yeah. Except they have this uh, this pseudo scientific uh, method on the table that's uh, legitimizing it all. Okay, so the readings that they're taking—that's a bit of a sham. Right. The whole thing's a sham. The idea is that it's a psychological tool that they can use on their employees. So if that employee knows, oh, I might get tested this month, then maybe he or she is going to mind their P's and Q's a bit more. Exactly. But that's yeah. the idea by the agency. That, that's perhaps. that's what uh, detractors um, argue. And that's certainly what uh, uh, antipolygraph.org argues. They have a lot of materials on the website, including mm-hmm. uh, more detailed information about how it works and how to beat it. And when, when, I, and when I say how to beat it, I'm, again, not just talking about the physical test, but the, uh, but the overall testing environment that is used uh, by various agencies. All right. Uh, interesting stuff to check out. Let's take a quick break. And when we get back, we are going to talk about the role of fMRI in lie detection. All right, we're back, and we've been talking about the thought police. We've been talking about methods of, uh, of, of telling whether a person is lying or telling the truth. Uh, and when, just as an aside, uh, one individual who famously passed the polygraph test, uh, Gary Ridgway, the Green River Killer. And of course, now we li- we're in the age of the of MRIs and fMRIs. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're talking about magnetic uh, resonance imaging and functional magnetic uh, resonance imaging. Now we've just we've talked about fMRIs a lot uh, on this show because anytime we're talking about the brain and current brain research, we're we're interested in knowing what's going on inside the mind, what parts of the brain are being used to process various things. Uh, an fMRI. Uh, measures brain activity by detecting the changes in blood oxidation and flow that occurs in response to neural activity. So when a brain area is more active, it consumes more oxygen, and to meet this increased demand, blood flow increases to the active area. Uh, and the difference between an MRI and an fMRI, MRI is a snapshot of the brain. fMRI is more of a, uh, a moving picture of the brain. So you can see where things are flowing and how the activity is is, is, is occurring. Yeah, MRI is more uh, revealing of anatomy as yeah. opposed to brain activity with fMRI. So it turns out, of course, fMRI is really, really helpful in trying to pinpoint the parts of the brain that are processing information. So if you're looking at a picture, you know that your visual cortex is going to light up. Um, you know that if you're trying to you make a judgment call about something that you're seeing or listening to, then you know that your prefrontal cortex is going to be very busy uh, trying to weigh its options and its judgments. Now, not everything, of course, is that um, stupid simple, if you will, uh, because <laughs> um, we've discussed before, a, a lot of times 
sometimes it's a, it's kind of a puzzle figuring mm-hmm. out you'll have multiple parts of the brain that are involved in a particular task and then you have to sort of piece together what that means it's it's not always a situation where it's like you can, you can't look at a, an fmri result and, and be like oh well the, the 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 part of his brain the part of the brain associated with lying to your grandma about a cookie jar is lighting up uh, so we know what actually occurred. But we do know that a lot of our memory has to do with uh, spatial elements, dimensions. Mm-hmm. And so if someone committed a murder inside of a home and uh, you were to put, say, some photos in front of this person right. of the, this house and you could see that their brain was going a little bit crazy in the hippocampus and, and showing that it recognized this room. It right. already had this blueprint inside of this person's brain. Then you could begin to make the case that there are some unique identifiers of certain uh, criminal situations that you could mark against an fMRI scan of the brain. Right, and and likewise, in the same way that you could show evidence pictures, you could also show pictures of suspects' faces. Mm-hmm. If you were, say, um, if someone thought that you might have been an accomplice to a, 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 cl- a crime, if someone thought you might have, say, driven the car that a bank robber used, and mm-hmm. then you were shown uh, four different uh, faces of four different bank uh, suspected bank robbers, and then you could measure their response to that. Is there some sort of uh, familiarity that's, uh, that's, that's popping up here? Um, and then also... Apparently, there are three parts of the brain that work harder during a lie, and that's according to, to, to Steve uh, uh, Lakin of uh, Cephos Corp., which is uh, a company that's uh, very involved in the, the development and, uh, and the use of, of fMRI lie detection. Mm-hmm. And so the idea here is that you put somebody in an fMRI and you give them basic yes and no questions based on uh, on whatever you're, you're quizzing them about, and uh, and you can then put all that info through an algorithm and determine what is actually going on in their mind. At the uh, the World Science Festival, uh, Alan Alda aired a little bit of a video from an upcoming PBS documentary mm-hmm. that he's done about neuroscience and law, in which he goes into this machine uh, um, and into Steve uh, Lincoln's machine, and uh, they're trying to figure out whether he took a ring or a or a wristwatch out of a drawer mm-hmm. prior to the experiment. Because he's a big klepto, Alan Alda. <laughs> well, well, he was he was asked to, to steal one or the other. Yes. Um, and he uh, and he says he was very tempted to steal them both just mm-hmm. to screw with their results, but but he's he, he went with the ring, and they were able to determine, uh, you know, not looking in his pockets, uh, but but quizzing him, uh, basically do, doing the whole uh, uh, the Hobbit and Gollum thing. You know, what's in your pockets is, I guess, and uh, and and the machine was able to determine he's def- he definitely has the ring in his pocket because mm-hmm. he responded this way to questions about the ring and or pictures about the ring. Okay, so there are a couple of problems though with fMRI, right? And. One is that uh, the problem is our brains and our memory recall. And we've talked about this a thousand times, that memory is fallible, that uh, when you take a memory out, you can sometimes change it, or right. you have false memories of things. Yeah, there. Um, you know, so I think we discussed seven key ways that memories uh, can be made false, mm-hmm. and uh, and so even if you're even if you're just going into a room, I mean, there've been case after case of people who um, who either by their own fault, by their own formation of a faulty memory, or by um, you know slight coercion on the part of um, the police investigators, end up making a false ID in a lineup. Mm-hmm. You know, you end up seeing a face, and you're like, "That's that's the one." Or in that the one case we were talking about, where uh, an assault occurred while the TV was playing, mm-hmm. and the uh, the victim ended up identifying the individual on the television as the individual in her apartment assaulting her. Right, because she happened to be staring at that person while something traumatic was happening to her, and that was coded 
as the face uh, who was perpetrating this act against her. Yeah. So yeah, I mean that memory is just uh, it's a very dicey thing. And yes, as you as you uh, had pointed out, eyewitnesses are notoriously bad at IDing the right person. So. If you see an image and you're an fMRI and you see an image of a person and you think it looks like that could be a familiar person or someone you know, then it may not be. It may just be someone who resembles another person that right. you know. So, so there's that whole, the whole issue of, of memory itself has to be taken into account. Yeah, you can't tease out, is this a false memory mm-hmm. or a true memory? Now, now there have been a lot of tests, though, with the fMRI lie detection, somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 different ones with subjects given stimuli, and they're questioned uh, about uh, about, about uh, something that, that may be a truth or maybe a falsehood. And uh, supposedly the, the results are anywhere been 70% to 90% effective. Mm-hmm. But uh, but then you get in, into this weird area of what is it actually detecting? Is it really detecting a lie, or is it detecting emotional importance? Mm-hmm. Um, or, or, or some other kind of, uh, you know, uh, um, mental process about the stimuli. For mm-hmm. instance, the ring. Um, Alda ends up going with this ring, and present. I believe they were both his objects. So, so it's like a wristwatch and his wedding ring. Mm-hmm. So, the the wedding ring ha- has a lot of value to him. It's a, it's a, you know like anybody's wedding ring. It, there are a lot of ideas wrapped up in, into that object. And so, uh, to what extent are the fireworks in his head that the fMRI detects? Uh, to what extent are those more? Uh, Tied into the meaning of the object than uh, to whether he stole it. So you've got memory, you have emotion to deal with, and uh, the other part of fMRI and it being not so foolproof is that you can game it much like you would a polygraph. Yes, uh, in fact, uh, on the the, the panel we, we were uh, uh, we were talking about earlier, um, Nita Farahani actually. Uh, uh, was was given this lie detection test and was told come up with ways to beat it, and she actually got got pretty good at it pretty mm-hmm. fast. And uh, she had a, she had a couple different ways uh, that she was that, that she recommends beating an fMRI lie detection test. Uh, so she so for instance you're shown uh, a picture of fa- of familiar faces to see if you know who the bank robber is. For instance, right. do you recognize this face? And she said that she could instead of focusing on the face, mm-hmm. focus on a detail of the picture. You know, it, it's kind of like um, we've talked about before. If you stare at something long enough, mm-hmm. it starts looking weird. It starts to look alien, right? Yeah. So, so she would look at dots, you know, and she would just sort of zone out on those dots and say, "Say no, I don't recognize this at all." She's being asked about the face, mm-hmm. but she's looking and thinking about just a, a collection of dots that mm-hmm. look totally new to her and different. And she's able to fool it that way. Uh, and then she recommends you could you could probably uh, do the same thing by sort of blanking out your mind and trying to think about nothing a la um, Ghostbusters, where um, they're told to uh, that whatever their next thought right, is right. will be the form of the Destroyer, and then Dan Aykroyd's character um, accidentally has this childhood memory of the Stay Puft Marshmallow right. Man. Um, or you could basically take the take the, the route of just thinking of the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. If they're saying, well, you know, here's a question about this crime or, or where you were when this crime occurred, and you just fill your thought with Marshmallow Man, and you may pass. Well, and she also says that you have to will yourself again to uh, see this in a fresh new way. Yes. And to think to yourself, wow, that's amazing. I've never seen that before. That array of dots. Fascinating. Completely mm-hmm. new to me. And yes, yeah, she did that, and she was able to beat the machine. And, of course, one more thing to mention on uh, fMRIs uh, is that currently it would be exceedingly different to give, difficult to give somebody an fMRI um, against their will because there's a right. certain you have, you have to be still, you have to be, cooperate, and, um, and, and therefore 
in its current form, it's not going to be one of these situations where someone's brought in in chains and said, all right, we're scanning that brain of yours. However, if you were trying to prove your innocence, yeah, then, then you, you could submit to. yourself. Yeah. Or if you were going to try, if you were guilty and you were going to try to game the machine, mm-hmm. you could certainly submit yourself. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, uh, the experts on this panel, uh, including uh, Farahani and also Anthony D. Um, D. Wagner, a uh, psychologist and neuroscientist, I mean, they said, you know, in the next 10 years, we're just going to see more and more of this. We're going to see, uh, see fMRIs used in or, or attempted uh, to be used uh, to clear people of crimes or to... Or to uh, you know see about uh, prosecution. And there was a judge on that panel too, and mm-hmm. they talked a lot about how judges are trying to get up to speed with neuroscience because they realize that this is seeping into the courtroom, and they they need to they need to be become, informed. Yeah, yeah, you know, fluent in the technology and to understand and begin to actually sort of craft some of some of the laws around that. Actually, yeah, and also the importance uh, they also mentioned of making sure juries are are educated about it because we mentioned the fingerprinting thing, but mm-hmm. before about how juries could be uh, won over just by a fancy presentation where it's like, ooh, that has a chart. Oh, that has a picture of a fingerprint and all the swirls. It looks very impressive. Right. You're making an impressive looking case, so I'm going to buy it. Likewise, you don't want a jury that just because they're rolling out a bunch of neuroscience at you and just you know hitting you over the head with it, you're thinking, ooh, they have the, the science on their side, so I guess they're right. Well, and then you also have uh, the instance of when DNA was introduced to courtrooms, mm-hmm. and that was very difficult at first because People didn't have a, a shorthand way to discuss how to determine DNA. Right. It's now we take it for granted because we have a baseline understanding of it. But mm-hmm. back then, that was sort of crazy pants to be like, hey, so we're going to match these things up, these markers, in the mm-hmm. following ways. And it was sort of scrambling people's brains. Right. So that's the fMRI. That's one way uh, that we have it, looking in at the brain and seeing what's happening. Um, uh, but then there are some other interesting areas as well uh, that, that use uh, use m- this kind of mind scanning technology mm-hmm. to see what we're thinking, to to peek inside those little mental movies that we create, be they memories or fabricated uh, fantasies or 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 things that we would like to do, and actually taking them out of the brain and putting them on a, t- on a TV screen for the judge and jury to look at, and printing them out yeah. and distributing them to the jury, right? Yeah. Now, this is something we've we've talked about this before. I think maybe we did it in our um, our wrap up of Big Science for 2012, um, where uh, and it made a lot of lot of press. Uh, and this is the this was a particularly a University of California uh, Berkeley experiment mm-hmm. where uh, researchers uh, fed a computer with 18 million one second YouTube clips uh, that the uh, participants in the study, the human participants, mm-hmm. had never seen, and then they asked the computer to predict what brain activity each of those clips would evoke. Uh, then they uh, asked it to reconstruct the movie clips using the uh, the best matches it could find uh, based on this uh, this enormous volume of YouTube data that it had. You know what I like about this study is that the it was the co-authors who actually volunteered yeah. to be scanned because it took hours and hours of them looking at this one point, looking at movie clips mm-hmm. while their brains were being scanned. And if I understand this correctly, the machine was then fed those YouTube clips so that it could create a separate database mm-hmm. to then compare the images of the movie clips that the volunteers saw, right? Yeah. And so, this is where the images were reconstructed. Yes. It's kind of like basically the idea is attempting to view these YouTube clips through the human mind. Yeah. Alone, based yeah. on based on the the um, uh, the scans, and uh, the the uh, results were were blurry, but 
astonishing. For instance, if a human figure appeared in the original clip, then a human form would generally show you. It's not like you'd see the face or anything, but you would see a general representation of, of a human. Kind of shadowy looking. Yeah. And uh, just very low resolution looking stuff. Yeah. Now, what was really cool is that one of the clips showed elephants walking uh, right to left. Uh, and uh, since there weren't elephants in the YouTube clips that mm-hmm. formed the, the computer's uh, um, you know, visual information, it had no idea what to represent. It was just like a, a, a blurry, dark form. So it did not have it in its world brain dictionary. So you would have to, you would have to establish a pretty rich uh, world brain dictionary for this kind of technology for it to really be able to, to take those images out of the mind and put them on the screen. But I think what is so fascinating about this and, and it has such far-reaching implications is that all it was, it was just 18 million YouTube clips mm-hmm. fed into this machine. If you were to, and presumably they're doing this, building up that database, then they could get a pretty rich world brain dictionary going. Right. If they were able to make this technology mobile, uh-huh. see where I'm going with this? Yeah. Then you could, unbeknownst to someone, and I'm talking future talk, uh, you know, beam a light at this person uh-huh. into their, their uh, visual cortex, get a reflection back, and start to read off what this person is thinking of or dreaming of. Well, what, what it, one thought that comes to mind here is that would it mean that criminals would have to make sure that they perpetrated their acts with as many elements outside of the World Brain Dictionary as possible? Would we see like the rise of, uh, and I think Grant Morrison used this in Doom Patrol a little bit, um, like Dada criminals, where they would have to use like absurdist costumes and tactics so that nothing that you saw would match up. Nothing that was, that, that was, well, maybe the, the basic aspects of the crime would match up because stealing money is stealing money or, you know, or, or murder is murder. But if enough of the elements were absurd and didn't match up with the, with the World Brain Dictionary, then that would per- perhaps flaw the visions of it that we could get out of the human mind with this machine. That's intriguing because, I mean, what you're saying is that you would train your brain to begin to... We know the brain can bifurcate itself anyway, right? Mm-hmm. It can sort of split its tasks. So, And we've seen this with, with ventriloquists. Uh, so if someone was committing a crime, they would begin to think of their gun as a marshmallow. Yeah. Refer to it, see it as a marshmallow, and therefore disassociate gun with the crime and associate marshmallow with it. And that would be its sort of like quantum code, its yes. key code, not quantum. But that would be it, its key code, right? And you would have to know the key code, but you, this person who is putting someone through the fMRI scanner or this machine uh, that that's wedded with uh, the World Brain Dictionary, wouldn't know that. You yeah. wouldn't have the key. Is it possible? I don't know. Surely. Yeah. Now, another thing uh, that that uh, that you have to take into account here, and this is something that um, that uh, Anthony w- uh, Wagner pointed out in the uh, the World Science Festival talk, is that um, another potential issue is how close imagination is to experience. Uh, imagination, as we've uh, discussed in previous episodes, is very close to the real experience as a mental event. There is some distinction in scans between memories of experience and pure imagination, but they're very similar, very similar brain activity. So you would, might find yourself in a situation where you're using uh, some of this technology we're talking about to scan the brain and see what your reactions are or see what your you know, what kind of mental images, mental movies are playing in your head. Mm-hmm. But then you have to ask yourself, is this a mental image is this the per- is this person remembering a murder they committed? Are they thinking about a murder that they 
fantasized about committing? That they that they are they thinking about a, mu- a murder they saw on TV? Are they thinking about a murder that they read about in the newspaper and just via pure old fashioned human empathy couldn't help but imagine themselves in that murderer's shoes? You know. Well, you know what's in- interesting about that is that there's um th- there's that case of I believe it was a police officer who was in a bunch of chat rooms um, concerning basically eating another human. Do you remember this? The, the cannibal cop? Yeah, yeah. yeah. He actually never killed anybody or ate them, as far as we know. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was this whole debate about, well, if this person actually started going to lunch, having these lunch dates with potential victims, and if he left this trail behind him, this this memory trace, Essentially, this, even if it was just his imagination or his fantasy, is he capable of doing it? Is he capable of, of stepping over that threshold? So in a way, it's the same sort of thing. I mean, how do you, how do you determine whether or not someone actually did the deed or is about to do the deed? Yeah. To, when we get into the whole area of, of thought crime, is it, is it, because like, for instance, take, uh, take murder. Okay. So murder. murder. So. Like, for instance, there's a huge difference between me, say, hearing a story about a husband murdering his wife and mm-hmm. then thinking of that and being like, oh, my God, wouldn't that be horrible if I did that? That would be the worst. And then I but I imagine myself doing it in similar circumstances. Mm-hmm. There's a huge difference between that and fantasizing about killing my wife. You know, you know, this is an interesting conversation because I tried to explain to my mom once that um, growing up, I used to have these awful thoughts and what I did not realize when I was too young to realize that mm-hmm. I was just trying to uh, embody in someone else's mind and imagine what something might be like mm-hmm. and just sort of take that thought experiment to its nth degree to just to see what it felt like to be in those in that person's shoes. And it used to disturb me because I thought that I was a dark person not realizing that's part of the creative process or the imagination. Yeah. And that's. You know, part and parcel why I am interested in writing. I'm, I'm a writer because I like to put myself into those other situations. So you bring up a really good point. You know, just just occupying that that frame of mind uh, mean that you're culpable. Yeah, you end up. Yeah, you have to worry worry about actors. You have to worry about uh, about writers. And then, to what extent could you actually plan to murder somebody and carry out a murder, murder. by masking it with all of this art? Like, say, what if you just simply wrote the short story first and then committed the crime, or you uh, you acted in the one act play, or what if you made sure that the murder perfectly mirrored uh, some sort of a murder that occurs in Shakespeare? Because then it's kind of twofold, because you can say, oh, of course I have that murder in my mind, because mm-hmm. I saw it on stage like eight times. Right. Or, and also that would uh, that would prevent them from, uh, uh, one of the things we've talked about here is, say, like showing them an image of a ring mm-hmm. and seeing if it lights up. Uh, inevitably, with any kind of a uh, homicide investigation or any kind of an investigation, they're going to be, you want to keep the, the details out of the press, because you want new information right. you can so you can surprise um, suspects with and be like, do you recognize this watch? Do you recognize this footprint? Um, so, it, and certainly, do you recognize this murder weapon? Mm-hmm. But if the murder weapon is is something iconic, you know, like I say, to what to whatever degree the crime matches up with something publicly known, uh, then there's less stuff that you could shock them with. And, and anything you show them with, oh, of course I'm familiar with that murder weapon because that is the murder weapon that was used in this movie. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah, so, I mean, it, it is interesting. If I were a defense attorney, I would probably take the tact of saying, we are human beings, we have theory of mind, um, and this is what allows us to imagine ourselves in other situations, and therefore my client is, you know, 
just putting her himself into this situation. Or what if you were to say, imagine yourself in my client's um, shoes. And then everyone does, and then you would just arrest them all because they've all committed <laughs> thought crimes now. All right, so um, you know, on the on the panel uh, about neuroscience and law, uh, they did bring up the Fourth Amendment guarding mm-hmm. against unreasonable searches and seizures, and so you know they're extrapolating this to to fMRI scans because, in a sense, you are invading someone's privacy. Right. So then, of course, it does bring up this whole raft of, of, of uh, topics like what is privacy, to what extent uh, do we have access to privacy anymore when you live within society. Right, and this is especially a big topic right now. It's all over the, you know, the media. We're worrying about NSA and our and our uh, the contents of our, our emails and our, our, our phone calls, et cetera. But, uh, yeah, um, Farahani brought up uh, some interesting points. She said that there is nothing clear-cut uh, that would that could protect us against this sort of thing uh, if we were a legitimate suspect in a crime. She says that all a warrant uh, is is a right to the search. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, do we need would we need new language added to our uh, to our warrants? Uh, you know, perhaps. But she says right now the Fourth Amendment protects us against unreasonable searches and seizures based on how physically invasive. The search it protects against physical body and space intrusions, but not intrusions into your secret. So she said, think of a diary. All right, the, all the all that uh, the Fourth Amendment protects is the door that stands between the uh, investigators and the diary, mm-hmm. not the contents of the diary itself. And an fMRI is minimally invasive uh, in the physical sense, though it's of course. Uh, Potentially very penetrating uh, in the larger sense. So to make it parallel to the Fourth Amendment, then in order to access the door, then you would have to be served the search warrant Mm -hmm. so that you would be able to at least, I suppose, prepare yourself. Yeah, I guess. I mean, it's it's we're we're entering uh, entering a new age here. We have new uh, new issues that are coming up. Uh, and uh, and certainly we're going to have to change uh, the language of warrants, the language of laws and the language of rights. Interesting territory. Yep. All right. Well, on 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 that thought, let's uh, let's call over the uh, robot and see if we have any listener mail. All right. So we recently did an episode on sensory deprivation uh, tanks, isolation chambers. So we, we did two episodes on them actually, and we uh, said, hey, we know that some of our listeners have uh, entered the uh, womb to tomb wet box as well. So let's find out what they had to say about it. Um, here's one from uh, Taylor. Taylor writes in and says, Hi, Robert and Julie. Uh, my mind was blown by the fact that Robert did not mention the movie Altered States during your podcast on sensory deprivation chamber. Uh, he is usually very eager to mention uh, when your topics are featured in books or films, but he never mentioned it. It's a great movie starring William Hurt and has everything to do with what y'all are talking about. Robert, if you haven't seen it, I think you'd really dig it. It's about a scientist who gets carried away with his own research into SDCs and psilocybin. The movie gets very strange and far out with what happens to him. Just watch and you'll see. Uh, indeed, I've, I've been familiar with Altered States for a long time, but have never actually watched it. I thought I would find time. Uh, when we were researching these, but uh, the two hours did not present itself. And, you know, um, we actually discussed it uh, in our sort of like, hey, let's do this topic. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah so, We're like, oh, we should do this. There's altered states. But, uh, uh, yeah, uh, William Hurt. Um, and brain scans actually would corroborate this. Yeah? Yeah. Cool. <laughs> we'll, we'll pull out the brain scans later. Yeah. Uh, and They're mandatory here. 
Yeah. And here's another one on the sensory deprivation chambers from Lisa. Lisa writes in and says, Hi, Julian Robert. I was so surprised to hear your podcast on sensory deprivation chambers literally a few days after I tried it for the first time myself. My first float was on, was last Sunday, June 9th, and I'm going back for a repeat experience this coming Sunday. Um, a new facility for this called Float House opened up in Vancouver a month ago, and I was both excited and a little scared to try it out. I was excited because I've been practicing meditation for a little while now, and I've heard that floating is a way to deepen the meditative experience. I was a little scared because the whole thing seems a little weird. With reports of hallucinatory experiences, I wasn't quite sure what to expect. The facility itself was very clean and spa-like. Each tank was in a private room with a shower. Towels, robes, slippers, shampoo, and conditioners, etc. were all provided. While I did not experience any hallucinations or anything I would call transcendental, I did really enjoy the experience. It was extremely relaxing to lie in the warm water and meditate for 90 minutes. I was a bit worried uh, that the time would be too long, but it was just right. Uh, I could have stayed in there longer, actually. It was a challenge not to fall to sleep, as I was so comfortable. When I got out, all of the muscular aches and pains in my shoulder and back had melted away. I can't wait to float again this coming Sunday. I hope you both enjoy your upcoming floats. Lisa Vancouver. All right. Very cool. All right. Well, uh, you know, we have more mail on this topic that we'll get to in the future episodes, but we thank everybody for writing in about them and to continue to write in with your experience with, uh, with any topic we were talking about. For instance, if you have something you would like to share about the science of lie detection, have you ever taken uh, or administered a polygraph test? We'd love to hear about that. And certainly if you've, uh, if you've undergone fMRI or any of the, anything uh, of this nature, we'd love to hear about that as well. And what are your thoughts about the future of the, the thought police? Are you uh, a little paranoid about all this? Do you feel okay with it? How, what do you think the world will be like in 10, 20, 30 years regarding our ability to peer inside the human mind and our legal authority to do so? You can find us uh, various places to interact with us on these topics. Uh, of course, the mothership is StuffToBlowYourMind.com, but we're also on Tumblr. Uh, we are on Facebook, Stuff to Blow Your Mind on both of those, and our Twitter handle is Blow the Mind. You can also check out our YouTube channel, Stuff to Blow Your Mind, and make sure to drop us a line at BlowTheMindAtDiscovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Yeah.